0: Today we're going to talk about generational friendships. These would be friendships with people who are one or more generations age-wise uh, distant from you. You may have noticed all the, all the wide generational representation in our, in our worship choir and our worship teams today. Brad and Rebecca, our guest worship leaders, last weekend after spending about four days with us in the Women's Conference on Sunday morning and last Monday night with our worship community they said it's been years since we've been in a church that's so broadly multi-generational in the worship community, and uh, we we don't think every church needs to be that way, but but we just love being that way ourselves. We grateful for a lot of. Someone said you don't say old people, you say older people. A lot of older people and a lot of younger people, and generational friendships are very much. The kinds of friendships we also encounter in God's Word. Now, um, I, my, my grandfather on my mom's side, he was a part of my life when I was when I was young. He was a career farmer on the Canadian Prairies. When he retired, he moved to Winnipeg, and that's where I was born. And I was living in Winnipeg at the time, so I'm a little kid in elementary school. And in his retirement years, he uh, still interested in agriculture. He, uh, he becomes a part of a team with some professors at the University of Manitoba who were studying bugs. They were studying insects. He'd take me with him at, to the University of Manitoba. I mean, I'm all of seven years old. And he'd show me bugs. This was awesome. And he was especially interested in aphids. Here's a picture of an aphid. And uh, if you're a farmer, you know about aphids under the leaves. And and he actually discovered an aphid that had never been discovered before. So the scientific community named it after my grandfather. That was my grandpa. So I have a grandpa, well, I'm a little boy, and I have a grandpa who loves bugs. I mean, how cool is that? But as some of you know, recently I, for the first time, became a grandfather myself. Here's a little guy, Paxton James. He lives in Dallas, so we don't get to spend a lot of time with him, unfortunately, but but he's kind of a heart-stealer. Unfortunately for him, unfortunately for him, I don't like bugs anymore, so I'm not sure what our bonding experiences are going to be as he grows up. Maybe he'll like physics books or something. I don't know. God help us. Here's a snapshot into, I'm going to take a risk today, not talk about one great friendship in the Bible, but two, two generational friendships. The first one is between Paul and Timothy in the New Testament. Here's a snapshot of that friendship. Philippians 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Now at this point, Timothy would have been in his mid-twenties. I hope to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. And then get this. I have, Paul says, no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone else looks out for their own interests and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know, Timothy, that he has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So when you're 25, that'd be quite a thing for someone like the Apostle Paul to say of you. I don't trust anybody like I trust Timothy. Because everyone else has a bottom line of self-interest, and they'll sell you out. But I trust Timothy won't sell you out for self-interest. Our other friendship is between two ladies. It's in the Old Testament, it's between Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Now, somehow, sometimes this mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship gets a little tense because some mamas don't think anybody's good enough for her boy. But here's this amazing friendship. And uh, just a glimpse, verse 15 of Ruth chapter 1, way back in the Old Testament. Look, said Naomi, and she's speaking to Ruth, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. You go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. For where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will become my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That's generational loyalty at its best right there. And the question before us this morning as we look at both of these older, younger relationships is what is it that that made these generational friendships work? What, What is it that made Paul and Timothy's friendship work? What is it that made Ruth and Naomi's friendship work? And I asked my wife that, that question. I was just curious what she might say. I said, I'm working on, earlier this week, I said, I'm working on this message, and what would you say makes generational friendships work? And uh, she got it absolutely right first time. This was absolutely no surprise to me because she's really smart, but she got it absolutely right. And she said these words, this, the first point. The, the first thing that makes things work is that they spent time together around, around com- a common purpose, Around a common purpose. First of all, friendship just flats out, takes time. I'm sorry there's no shortcuts here. It's taking time. But it's not just sitting in a coffee shop together or playing a video game together and wondering what on earth to talk about. But especially these generational friendships, they're usually centered in a purpose of some kind. Now for Timothy, that purpose was, was partnership. For Timothy, this was partnership. The Apostle Paul, in the early part of Acts chapter 16, on his second missionary journey, he runs across Timothy in Lystra, and he recruits him to be a part of his ministry team. And immediately, this is what Luke writes, Acts 16, verses 4 to 5, and they, that's Paul and Timothy, traveled from town to town. They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders In Jerusalem for the people to obey and so the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew daily in numbers because Paul and Timothy had teamed up this young guy and this older guy they became a ministry team and that's part of how that's how their friendship forged they otherwise would have had nothing in common except they both loved Jesus I think one of the best things you can do if you want to find more cross-generational friendships is probably volunteer for a ministry I guarantee you the probability is high in our church that if you volunteer on the ministry team there's going to be somebody older or younger than you. This is this is it. I'm sometimes touched to watch to watch our youth work, workers playing with our playing basketball with our kids and you see older guys huffing away and you see younger guys you know just showing off but but they're volunteering and ministering in our youth program. And normally they would sit on opposite ends in two different services and never run across each other, but volunteer for something. And, and this is, I think, I think, I said a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about that great friendship between Jonathan and David, um, you know, sometimes you just have to go after God's calling in your life and see who falls into step with you. And, and we don't do this in a vacuum. Usually, there's shared purpose. Shared purpose in this. And for Ruth, it wasn't so much partnership, but it was caregiving, caregiving. Um, Ruth grew up in Moab, which was across the Jordan in the the Dead Sea from Israel. Uh, Naomi was from Bethlehem in Israel. And and, uh, Naomi, Naomi had had a hard time in Israel, had gone to Moab with her husband and her two boys. Her boys started growing up. They met beautiful young ladies and they got married. One of them, one of her boys married Ruth, of course. And then misfortune struck. And uh, for reasons we don't understand, uh, Naomi's husband dies and she ends up a widow. And then the unthinkable happens. A few years later, both her sons die, leaving Ruth and Naomi's other daughter-in-law widows. And fortunes changed in Israel, and Naomi had lost everything in her life. And she thought, this is our time. This is is my time to go back to Bethlehem. And she tries to talk her two daughters out of it, her two daughter-in-laws out of it, but we read how Ruth just insisted, no, I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to abandon you. And Naomi gets back to Bethlehem, and and she greets her friends. She hasn't seen them for years. And she says to them in verse 20 of Ruth 1, Don't call me Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me Mara, because uh, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. I had a husband. I had two boys. I went away full, but the Lord's brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi? Naomi. The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. She's now an older widow. She has nothing to look forward to, and she's not sure how she's going to survive. And what a way to greet your friends after not seeing them for years! I left full, and I came back empty. Sometimes when we're young, uh, You know, that's the time to really build our identity and build our confidence. And I can tell you from experience already, as you get older, you start losing your sense of identity and you start losing your confidence. Because the world's changing really fast. It's very easy. I find it, if I don't fight it constantly, I find it easy to feel irrelevant. To feel like nobody, you know, there's nothing that I have to offer anymore. Everything's going to the young and, and all of this and let alone, you know, I probably have less years to live ahead of me than I have now behind me. And 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 and, 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 and Naomi just kind of embodies the worst of all of this. And, and, and so she's just sort of saying to her friend, just dumping on him, and saying, don't even call me pleasant. Don't call me by my real name anymore. Just call me bitter, because I think I've lost everything. And uh, Ruth, I'm sure, was standing just over here, listening to this grand entrance speech back into her hometown by her mother-in-law and thinking, that's why I'm here. I'm going to be her caregiver. She's lost everything, but she's not going to be alone. Now I have people say to me in our church family, Pastor, I'm very sorry, I feel guilty that I don't get to volunteer much anymore in the church. I hope you don't mind. And I hope God doesn't mind. But... One of my aging parents, I had to bring them into my home. The other parents died, and, and I don't think my mom can make it on her own anymore. And her health's really failing, and, and I still have a full-time job. And it, Pastor, it takes me like 24 hours a day. Sometimes, as one guy told me a few days ago, I'm up several times in the night. I'm exhausted. I'm still working full-time. Uh, And I feel bad I can't volunteer more than I do. I just want to say, if today you are being a caregiver, you are doing the will of God more than any volunteer in the church. You're doing the heart of Jesus who said, cast your care on me because I care for you. Some of you are grandparents. You raised your kids in your 20s and 30s, and some of your kids have messed up, and now their kids need parenting and you've taken your grandkids in and you're doing what you did in your 20s and 30s with a lot less energy now in your 60s and 70s i admire you you're heroes some of you are foster uh, parenting right now some of you are even single and foster parenting and you're married and you've got enough on your plate and yet you're taking people in and you're doing the caregiver role this was what ruth was all about she said i'm here at this season of my life, to be a caregiver. And that's why she said there, we read it, verse, ver, verse 17 of chapter 1, where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death, death separates you and me. I'm not going to lose you now at a difficult time in your life. This is the heart of God. These people who are doing caregiving in our church are spiritual heroes. Can I hear an amen? And then some of us live in a sandwich generation where we're starting to have, our kids are still home, but we're starting to have to pay a little more attention to our aging parents or possibly our grandparents if our parents aren't around. And that sandwich generation is challenging. I was a little bit in that up to about a year and a half ago. My mom passed away last year. She was living with one of my sisters in Florida who always wanted to have my mom live. My dad died at 75, but for the last, for probably 15 years, she's had my mom living there. And I've tried to be what help I can from a distance, but my mom died last year at 93 after declining quite a bit over the previous couple of years. And, and so in the, I noticed before she passed away last year, I was trying to find time and it was really expensive and it was hard to find time to get to Florida, spend one day with her and get back without missing a Sunday, without missing a Wednesday, and, and not missing my responsibilities as a pastor. But it's what you do. And I got in the months before she died. I was there probably every month, every six weeks, just spending time, I'll never forget, with my mom. And I was with her just, just before she passed away, before I had to run and get on a plane again and come back. But th- th- this is the heart of God. This is part of what makes generational ministry work and it's where some of us are and thank God thank God for you but then uh, the second thing that makes these generational um, generational relationships work is kind of stating the obvious here but but we, we find in both Paul with Timothy and Naomi with Ruth the older with the younger in both of those cases the older person in that relationship coached and mentored I mean, they, they had a way, both of them, of 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 being a mentoring influence, a, a coaching in the broadest sense of that word, a coaching influence in their lives. And and this is where, as I mentioned, some of us who get older, we we feel less secure about what we have. I've had couples say to me, young couples, say, we just love to hang around with a couple, married couple that's like at least a generation older and has done this marriage and parenting thing you know, and, and done okay at it, and sometimes I've honestly tried to network them, and I find the older couples just hesitant, like usually the younger couple's easy, e- eager, you know, because they think they're going to get some super secret, you know, they're going to find out the secret sauce of making their marriage work, and, and understandably, the older feel like, I don't know, I'm not a counselor, I don't, I don't know if I have anything to say, I don't know, I don't know. You know, what if they ask me a question I don't know how to answer over lunch? And, and it, just, it would just be embarrassing. And I just want to call you, if you are older, you've been around the block a few times than the younger, you know more than you think you know. It's amazing what could come out of you. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit could use you to speak wisdom and grace in life into others. Don't back off. You know, and don't be ashamed if you can't answer every question, and don't be ashamed of if, if some young person in your life's asking questions that you never even asked, even thought to ask when you were young. Listen, you've been around the block. You've walked with Jesus, some of you, for a few years now. It's amazing the influence of your story. It's amazing the influence that happens when you even don't say a lot. Sometimes in our insecurities we feel like we've got to say a lot and we end up giving cheap advice or 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 or, or we end up feeling this pressure to make the decisions for them. Listen, you, you never do that. But, but just listening and just responding, sometimes just saying, I understand, c- can go miles. And just that seasoned word that, you know, we made it, you, you can make it too. This is huge. So for Naomi, now Naomi's the recipient of, of the caregiver Ruth. But even Naomi ends up playing this kind of coaching role with Ruth because uh, they get to Bethlehem and they're going to starve unless Ruth finds a job. So Ruth says to Naomi, verse 2 of chapter 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I favor, I find favor. That would be her version of getting a job and, and finding, getting enough food to eat. And Naomi said to her, and this is so tender, this is so amazing to me. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. Go ahead. Sometimes when we're young, we don't need somebody making decisions for us. That's our responsibility. But but we just need somebody who's going to help us take the right step. Even if the step's fairly obvious, we still need the courage to take it. Ruth was going to go out in a field with a bunch of guys working. She could have easily been sexually abused, exploited, raped, I mean, she was stepping into a dangerous situation, but she just needed the courage of somebody older than her just saying, "Um, yeah, that seems good. Why don't you just do it? I was talking to um, the Cobals yesterday. We had a farewell for them. And Dwight Colball, who later became a longtime professor at Evangel. He was telling me at one year old, he, 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 start, he started Central Assembly when he was one year old. <laughs> That's pretty good. For, 1946. And he said, but when I grew up and got married, I uh, actually got let go of a job you know, in a church. It was very hurtful. And he said, it was a very dark time for us. And he said, Pastor Wanamaker, who was one of the legendary pastors and a much older man at that time than Dwight was, uh, here at Central, uh, the guy actually hired me just for a few months to help me through that low spot, and he he mentored me in things of the spirit. Often God would use Dwight in gifts of the spirit. He said Pastor Wanamaker was the one who mentored me in the spirit, and 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 and, tur- and it became a turning point that gave them the courage to go off go on. And he had this ama- He and Nancy had this amazing careers in education, and um. You know, sometimes that's what we do. It's just somebody who helps us, who gives us the courage to take the next step, who just comes alongside us and says it's okay. And in the next, in the next chapter of Ruth, Ruth actually meets the guy she's going to marry. And, and, um, and they have the, equivalent, the ancient equivalent of their first date. And then Ruth comes home, and Naomi, of course, is really curious what happened. Because although Ruth's taking care of Naomi, Naomi has a real heart for Ruth and is watching out for her. And so Naomi says to Ruth, tell me all about it. How did it go? I need details here. So she tells him all the details. And then Ruth says to her in verse 18 of chapter 3 no then naomi said to ruth cuz ruth goes so now what I do and she says just wait my daughter until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today now we who are older we're praying for a generation of younger adults who are smart but not cynical And they're creative, but not rebellious. And they're zealous, but not reckless. And sometimes in our youthfulness, man, we just want to charge out there. I remember having a conversation with my dad. I mean, I was just still in my second year of college, and I was going to just scrap everything and go after some other dream. And I remember it was a three-minute conversation, and all my dad says was, you're young enough, you can still do that someday but it's always good to finish what you started. In other words, my dad just kind of bridled my reckless passions and undirected energies back and says, why don't you just settle down, just wait a little bit and finish what you've started. And now, 50 years later, I'm still living out of that three-minute conversation. And I still remember it vividly. Some of us think we've got to be some kind of superstar mentors and all of this kind of thing. Listen, It's amazing what one short conversation, the effect it can have on a person's life. Not when you're telling them what to do, but when you're just being that seasoned perspective. And like Naomi says to Ruth, you know, I know it's tempting to try to take this in your own hands right now, but just wait. Let's just wait and see what God does. Thank God for people who do that in our lives. Thank God for those Not old, but older people, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then then you turn the tables. Not only did the older coach the younger, oh, let's look at Paul here, because Paul does the same thing with Timothy. Timothy, after they traveled together a while, uh, Paul left Timothy in Ephesus. Ephesus was an important church, and it was starting to have some serious problems. And so Timothy, what a guy, He gets left in emphasis while Paul takes off. That's nice, Paul, leaving me with all these church problems. But Paul does write him a letter back after a few months. That's 1 Timothy in our Bible. And um, he finds this wonderful way of just nudging Timothy on. And... um, And, for instance, verse 14 of 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, I think, is the greatest leadership chapter in the Bible. He says, do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. He just finished a few verses earlier saying, now, Timothy, uh, don't let them convince you that you're too young to pastor that church. Don't let them do that to you. But I think one of the greatest things we do is help younger people, when we're older, is help younger people visualize their potential. And here he says, Timothy, you're gifted. God's got his hands on you. Remember when you were ordained? I mean, I mean the spirit of God came upon your life. I remember people calling that out on my life when I was a teenager, and I still didn't even believe it. But men and women of God, in short, one minute long comments that they would make that I still carry with me to this day. They call it out. They say, Jim, God's got his hand on you. You know that. God's got a call in your life. I can see this happening through your life. I remember a 30 year old housewife turning around in church, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just barely over 20, and she says to me, she looks me in the eye. And she's God, and she starts talking to me prophetically about what God's going to be doing in my life. And it was just a natural conversation that lasted 30 seconds at the end of a normal service, but calling this out in one another. This is awesome. You never underestimate the potential of believing in a younger person and here. Here it all was, do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. And then this marvelous piece of advice that's actually been a life changer in my life. Verse 16, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourselves and your hearers. I, I heard a very accomplished leader this past week say, I'll always value anybody in my life who constantly brings me back to paying attention to personal health and personal vitality so that I truly can reach my potential. What a gift that is. Pay close attention to your life. Pay close attention to your doctrine, Timothy. I mean, we just need these encouraging voices in our lives constantly, praying for people that way, encouraging them that way. And then, of course, that table turns not only do the old mentor and encourage the younger But as we close, here's the last thing that happens. The younger, in both of these generational friendships, the younger shared responsibility in that relationship and and, and in the process honored the older. And this is incredibly important. When you're young, you tend to live with two myths. One of those myths is that life's fair. Although by about eight years old, you start suspicioning that might not, not be true. The other myth is that the world owes me something. I, remember th- I just remember feeling entitled. Like I deserve to have somebody give me my big break. Like the world owes me something. The problem, I, I, I grew to find out that I'm the only one in the world who believed that. <laughs> I'm the only one in the world who believes the world owes me something. Nobody else thinks that way. And so instead, you've got to take responsibility. You can't live like the victim of what somebody else didn't do for you. And you can't find a mentor and and expect them to give you the secret sauce and do all the work for you. And we see this with Timothy. I don't know. Uh, you know, Timothy was the protege. He was the young guy. He was being trained and mentored by Paul. And, but if Timothy was going to be ready for when the day did come that Paul died and the mantle f- went to Timothy, I mean, he had to do his homework. He had to do his work in that relationship. He had to share a responsibility to make that relationship work. And so in verse 22 of Philippians 2, we read it at the beginning, but you know that Timothy has proved himself. He's, he's what? He's proved himself. Because as a son with his father, he served with me, proved himself and served with me in the work of the gospel. This is very simplistic, but... Once in a while, a mass, I did this with a group of pastors in New York, young pastors uh, a couple of years ago, and I'm doing it now with a guy who's in leadership in our city, a young guy, who just asked, could I meet with you? Just, he didn't even come to this church, and I can't afford to do this very much, so I felt like the Lord gave me the green light to do it. But, but whenever someone says, uh, could I meet with you regularly? Could you kind of be my mentor? I'll always have a condition. I always say, and this seems trite, but I always say, okay, I'll do it under one condition. Number one, you schedule all the meetings. Don't wait for me to have time to remember that we haven't gotten together for five weeks and so I got to schedule it. You need to take this initiative to schedule the meetings and you need to come up with the questions that you want us to talk about because I don't want to do your thinking for you. And I want to tell you, if you're investing in somebody um, and you're working harder than they're working at that mentoring relationship and something's wrong. You're investing in a needy person and you're working harder at it than they are and uh, you're going to hit a black hole eventually. Here Timothy wasn't passive Then some of us as leaders that get older, you know, sometimes the younger generation goes, well, when are they going to quit so I can do something? And I'm sure some of you are thinking that about me, but... Thank you. Thank you for that. No, that was about as good as an amen. I know a lot of younger leaders chafe, I mean, and I've had... A handful of people promised to me that if I hold on too t- long, and, and I'm not ready, like I'm, I'm not done yet, but, but if I ever hold on too long, that they have promised to tell me the truth, to get in my face and tell me the truth because I don't want to hold on too long. But for as long as I, any leader holds on, there's a younger generation that starts chafing, like they get impatient, like when's my turn coming? When are those old guys going to get out of the way? But Timothy, he didn't seem to do that. Timothy instead took responsibility to make what is in the relationship work right now. That's what I love about our staff team right now. That's what I love about younger people in my life. He proved himself. And as a son with his father, he served him in the work of the gospel. And you see the same attitude with Ruth. Ruth leaving Moab and going to be a caregiver to her mother-in-law, in Bethlehem going to a town where she didn't know a soul going into a country she would never lived in before you know remember that when she said in verse 16 of chapter 1 where you go I will go where you stay I will stay your people will be my people and your God my God in essence she was, she was saying in this relationship I'm going to take some responsibility as well Um, not just to be a caregiver for you, but I'm going I'm to take responsibility to make this relationship work. I know there's a lot on the older in a generational relationship, but the younger, too. I'm going to take responsibility. So, first of all, I'm going to take responsibility for my spiritual life. I'm going to leave the idols of Moab, and your, the, your God, the true and living God, is going to become my God. I'm going to take responsibility that I'm healthy spiritually. She said, I'm going to take responsibility. That I make it through all the pain of culture shock. Your people are going to be my people. That's not going to be easy. I'm going to have a lot of culture shock, but I'm going to take responsibility. I'm not going to ask you to babysit me here. I'm going to take responsibility, and and she says uh, I'm going to I'm going to take responsibility to make sure you're never out of my sight, Naomi. That you'll never have to be on on your own. And when we're younger, it's sometimes easy to think we're entitled and. And, and you're there just to give me my break. And, and you're there just to t- tell me what to do or give me the secret sauce or step aside so I can take over. I mean, that's not how these generational friendships work. The older coach and mentor help us through life transition stages believe in us. And the younger, we take responsibility to make sure that we're not passive, even though we may be impatient, but we're not passive and we're doing all we can to make this work. And we have kind of a way we talk about God, not a kind of a way, a wonderful way that God's our Father, our Heavenly Father. And He had a Son. And we see all these same dynamics between God the Father and God the Son. God the Father who loved you and me so much He sent His Son, His Son who honored His Father by going to the cross to die in our place so that we could have grace and life from Jesus. All of this All of this is even acted out in this spiritually generational relationship, so to speak, between God the Father and God the Son, so that in Jesus, God the Son, we could have a relationship with him. And this is where it all starts. The fact is, you can have great friendships with younger people. You can be awesome caregivers. You can be mentored by the best in the world. But unless you know your heavenly Father... um, you're starting out crippled because you need the life of the Lord who can then help us walk through all of these generational relationships. And if you're here today as I bring this to a close and you don't know Jesus in your life, I want to invite you to to make this the day where you find a heavenly father and you start becoming his child and you let him Become your coach and your mentor. And you you take responsibility, not to deserve this relationship, but you you take responsibility to start going God's way and making this happen. All of the same stuff happens in our relationships with God. So I'd like to invite you to stand with me.